This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we'll talk about the really bad news from the Supreme Court on unions and politics, on gerrymandering, on the Muslim travel ban, and on Justice Kennedy retiring. Harold Meyerson will explain what we should do now. Also, Trump and migrant children will have comment from Sonia Nazario, who won the Pulitzer Prize for her reporting on Enrique's journey, the story of a boy traveling from Honduras to the Mexican border. First up, the war to win back the White House. Dana Goodyear will report on one race to flip a district in California. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, we say it almost every week. The road to the Democrats retaking the House in November starts in California, in the seven congressional districts Hillary carried, which are currently represented by Republicans. These are the top targets for flipping. One of them is in L.A. County. It's the district north of the city. It's currently represented by a Republican named Steve Knight. He has a strong Democratic challenger named Katie Hill. For comment on this key congressional race, which is kind of a bellwether for the rest of the state and many other similar races in the nation, we turn to Dana Goodyear. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker. She's also a poet and an award-winning writer about food. Dana Goodyear, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Well, let's start with Steve Knight, the Republican incumbent. Los Angeles County has more Democratic votes than any county in the entire United States. It has 17 seats in Congress. One of them is currently held by a Republican, Steve Knight. Tell us about Steve Knight. Um, Steve Knight is a retired law enforcement officer. Um, I don't know every last step about his uh, career in law enforcement, but I think he was um, on the force for 18 years or so. He was part of CRASH, which was a kind of SWAT-style anti-gang unit and and LAPD, and I'm pretty sure he worked in South L.A., and then he turned to politics, which was kind of the family business. His father was Pete Knight, who authored the same-sex marriage ban that was overturned in California and sort of, you know, set in motion our national discussion of... Um, equal marriage rights, and he, yeah, he's the he's the incumbent, and he's uh, running again in a district that is pretty purple, actually. I mean, he's it goes all the way from you know, it's LA County and Ventura County, so it's it's travels it travels two counties, and you've got you know Simi Valley, Santa Clarita, and all the way into Antelope Valley, and there's been a lot of demographic change in that district, and. Uh... Steve Knight won his last election in 2016 by remember how much that was six six points well, something like that. It was it was six points. I think it was six point two points. If I remember exactly, okay. and and Trump lost uh, the that that district uh, by six point seven points. So that is the window in which Steve Knight's opponent Katie Hill is working. And Trump and uh, uh, Knight on the issues, uh, he voted to repeal Obamacare. He voted for the Trump tax cuts. Uh, he votes with Trump, I think it's 99% of the time. 99. So he, is a, he is like a straight up and down the line Trump guy. 
And tell us a little bit more about uh, the district. It's been described as the wilds of northern L.A. County, and as you say, <laughs> it extends into into uh, Simi Valley uh, and Ventura County. Uh, you say it's undergoing demographic change. Who 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 the heck lives up there? Well, Simi Valley is actually where a lot of um, law enforcement live, um, and it's pretty prosperous there. And I think in Santa Clarita, I think the um, average income is something around 82000 a year. And then as you move east, the district gets poorer and more sp- sparsely populated and more sort of deserty. And, you know, literally you can be there and see tumbleweeds going down the street kind of thing. But then in there, the median income is more like 40000 a year. So, um, but, but some of the, the change has been happening there over decades. And there was, you know, in the 80s, a number of people from South L.A. moved to Antelope Valley looking for safer neighborhoods for their children and things like that. And, and in, in more recent years, um, so there's an African-American vote there. And then in more recent years, there's been um, an increase in Hispanic residents. And so I think that that is what is um, purpling the district. Yeah, Palmdale, I I see in your article, the second largest city in the Antelope Valley, the Latino population grew from 38% in 2010 to almost 60% uh, in, yeah. in 20... That's, that's right. That's big. That's a, that's a dramatic shift, and then you have to think with what is going on right now um, with, you know, Trump's anti-immigration policies and, um, you know, incredibly emotional issues like family separation that... Um, you have to assume that that is going to get people to the polls for the midterms. And we, you, we know that uh, Trump lost the district by 6.7 uh, points, that Steve Knight won the district by 6.2 points. What do we know about party registration in the district? I actually don't know the answer Democrats, to Democrats, I'm reading from your article, Democrats now yeah. outnumber re, uh, registered Republicans by nearly 14,000 votes, and nearly one in four voters are not registered with any party. So this is, this is that's the, the... Yeah, that's the intent. Yeah, so that's, that's right. That's what, that's what Katie Hill is also. She has a really great ground game. She's the one who won the um, number two slot after night. Um in the primary a couple of weeks ago, and you know she is she is counting on that uh, independent vote. Tell it so, yeah. Tell us about Katie Hill, the challenger. Uh, there was a big Democratic field. She one of the her main opponent was the guy who had run last time and and lost by six point two votes. Who is Katie Hill? Where did she come from? What kind of candidate is she? She she comes from. Congressional District 25, CA 25. She so she grew up in um, Antelope Valley and in some of the more. Um, I think she they moved to Santa Clarita when she was maybe ten or eleven. Um, she is actually the daughter of a police officer and a nurse, and she considered going down the path that her uh, her mother's career and becoming a nurse and. Um, the story she told me is that she was working um, the night shift in the ER and she was ministering to somebody who um, had been injured and his sister, they were in foster care and they were going to lose their housing. It was a, it was a, basically she started to think of the kind of triage work that both of her parents do as having a dimension 
for her that meant helping people who are unhoused in the county. And so she eventually uh, became the uh, director of PATH, which is People Assisting the Homeless, which is one of the largest homeless services organizations um, in the region. And she was able to successfully pass um, Prop H and Measure HHH. Um, I'm so sorry. I'm on my cell phone, and that is the other line coming in, but I'm going to ignore it if you okay. bear with me. Um, and uh, I don't know how to shut that off. We're not uh, hearing it. We're not hearing them. They're bothering you, but okay. they're not bothering us. Excellent. Um, but anyway, so she really learned a lot about navigating the legislative, legislative process and coalition building through getting those um, those measures passed. And of course, it was a you know bit of a, a mixed victory for her on election day when um, the first of those passed because it also which dedicate uh, billions of dollars for. Um, permanent supportive housing for the homeless in L.A. County, or L.A. City, and then in the, in the spring vote, it was L.A. County. But that was, you know, the day that Trump became president. So for her, it sort of got threatened to undermine the work that she'd been doing, and uh, she decided to run for office. So she's never run for any political office. She ran one of the biggest uh, homeless uh, agencies. Uh, she She's 30 years old. She's young. Um, she's 30. She's a rock climber. She's a, yes. b- a bisexual woman who's been married to a man for a long time. So she defies a lot of the uh, stereotypes, particularly for political women. Which the, be, the, Yeah, the bisexual rock climber is the one that, uh, I, that I remember best. Yeah, and, and I, think it's, I think it's incredibly refreshing to think about, just from a feminist perspective, having a female candidate with so much potential who doesn't conform at all to the the sort of stereotypes of uh, that women in, in politics have been forced to conform to? She's also been really open about the sexism that she's encountered on uh, the campaign trail. Uh, yeah, tell us a little more about that. Well, I think a lot of people, a lot of Democrats, have said that you know said to her in the uh, lead up to the primary, "I'd really love to vote for you, but I don't think a woman can defeat Steve Knight." Mm. So she proved them wrong. And, you know, but she's, you know, she also talks about how, you know, there's endless commentary about her appearance and her attitude and what she, you know, what is it, um, RBF, which is, am I allowed to say the B word on the radio? Resting B face. <laughs> Resting um, B face is good. This is in, in, in her public, in, in the public uh, d- uh, debates, her resting face was criticized, let us say. Yes, as being, you know, harsh and making her look like a female dog, I guess you'd say, and uh, just basically meaning she wasn't smiling and making everybody feel good. And, you know, I think it's so great that a woman will talk about that um, ridiculous expectation um, that people have and also that, you know, she's not phased by it at all. Yeah, You're not going to see her. Um, getting a makeover and being someone else, I don't think, because I think she's a very authentic candidate. And I think this election cycle is really, really interesting because of that, because of the use of a lot of the um, new, you know, a lot of political newcomers who are very young, who are coming from backgrounds that don't seem conventionally political at all. And uh, she's been endorsed by Emily's List, which is kind of the the gold standard of candidates. Uh, She's campaigning for Medicare for All. Um, And she has this this 
ad uh, where she is climbing a mountain while she is giving her pitch, and it's it's an incredible metaphor, and it's also a really a pretty unforgettable ad. It's got to be one of the greatest ads of the season, don't you think? I think so. I mean, I have a fear of heights, so I get nervous watching <laughs> that. But, but I think I think it's great. I mean, it's you know, it's not you know breaking a metaphorical glass ceiling or anything like that. It's actually doing this thing. Yeah, so, and, and, and I, I yeah, they and they must have like a helicopter or a drone or something following her up this uh, mountain while she's giving her 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 pitch. Well, I'm guessing drone because it's a, yes. as Vice News said, you know, most like most millennial campaign ever. So I'm they're using all the new tech, um, you know, and I think they they've actually done so well raising money. Um, she far out raised uh, night, but um, he had a bit of a war chest left over, I think, um, from previous uh, elections. But the you know they're they're very scrappy in their approach. But she's been very successful raising money in the city of LA or in, you know, in Hollywood and those, those, uh, communities, I think she is an inspiring figure and especially now. And also, you know, the era of me too, it wasn't incidental to her decision to run. I mean, she went yeah. to Washington and saw the women's March, but by sure participated in the women's March. She was there on uh, past business and that's, you know, right around that time she met with Emily's that, that on that trip, she met with Emily's list and she decided she's going to run. And you've been to some uh, campaign events uh, up there uh, in the wilds of northern L.A. County. What what were they like? Actually, I, that that was reported from footage that is posted ah. publicly available online. But um, you know, I was really struck with this footage of a town hall. You know, where it was Knight's town hall, and she stood up and asked a penetrating question, and it, and and he pretended it was about um, health care. And he, it, you can tell that most people in the audience know who she is because there's whooping and cheering when she stands up. And she said her name, and he sort of said, didn't really answer the question, but he said, sorry, what's, what's, your, what's your name again? And I thought, <laughs> oh, my God, this guy, he, he's going to like wake up in the middle of the night thinking her name pretty soon because <laughs> she's going to give him a run for his money. But, you know, for him, you know, he's seen tough political battles before, the uh, Brian Caforio, the Democrat that Katie was really competing, vying with for that spot, um, he was definitely considered to be um, beaten last time around, and then he didn't. So I think, you know, Knight is not letting on that he's nervous at all, and, and he has direct experience of having overcome the odds. So I think it's, it's not something to get too complacent about, the idea yeah. that Katie Hill is going to win. Well, you said she's uh, been very successful at raising money, and of course the conventional view is that money is everything in politics, especially in California. There's another view, which is that uh, door-to-door canvassing, face-to-face conversations is the key to turnout, especially for a, a, an unknown uh, challenger. How's she doing on the, uh, on the door-to-door part? I think she's doing really well on that. I think that's a real strength of her campaign, and I think she learned that through getting... Um, H and HHH through. I think that I think that's where she developed her ground game, and it's you know it's a community organizer thing, and she does definitely look to Obama as a model for um, beginning a political career. So I, I think she feels pretty good about that. And you know, as I said, Vice News did this two-part documentary about her. Yeah, it's really it's fun 
watching because she's very unvarnished and um and and just to let for politicians to let vice news have act sort of unlimited unfettered access to you is pretty um just unusual it feels like a generational shift in how politics is being approached but anyway you you know you see that ground game on screen there um you know it's a lot of door to door stuff so um and then she even told me a story about how um, one of her, uh, I think her her mother read an article in one of the local papers that was talking about um, the, the 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 two Democrats, basically Katie Owen and Frank Foyo, and they saw uh, her mother noticed that one of the people quoted as a Kafoyo supporter had been their neighbor back in the day in Ellis Valley, and so then Katie's sister gets on Facebook and Facebook's message, Facebook messages that guy's daughter and says, I can't believe your dad is voting for Caforio. Don't you know Katie Hill is like the Katie Hill who used to live next door to you? So it's that personal, the politics out there. And so then that family switched over and became Katie Hill supporters. And, you know, she also said her, her dad is a lifelong Republican, voted Democrat for the first time to vote for his daughter. And a lot of his friends in law enforcement did the same this time. Last question. Is Katie Hill going to win? Is she going to flip the last Republican district in L.A. County? I think it looks pretty good. I don't, I don't you know, I don't really like to make predictions, or that, but I don't, I wouldn't want to, um, yeah, I can't say that with great confidence, but she certainly has a lot of momentum. She has a lot of drive, and I think she has a, a really, really, really motivated team. So I think she's got a good chance. And, and also, you know, Knight's Knights voting with a guy who wasn't even popular there before he got into office, i.e. Trump. So I I have a feeling that she's going to pull it off. Dana Goodyear, she wrote about Katie Hill's campaign to flip the last Republican district in L.A. County for TheNewYorker.com. Thank you, Dana. Thanks a lot. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, migrant children, the Border Patrol, and Donald Trump. The great Sonia Nazario will be our guest. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. Same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, it's been a really bad week at the Supreme Court, one of the worst ever. Harold Meyerson will talk about what we do now. But first, migrant children and their families fleeing violence in Central America. They've been, of course, targeted by Donald Trump He's no longer separating kids from their parents, we are told, but 2,000 of the kids have not yet been reunited with their parents. And for the rest, it's a confusing situation where it seems right now that his zero-tolerance policy means putting the whole family in detention together. 
One reporter who knows a lot about migrant children and their families is Sonia Nazario. She's one of our heroes. She spent 20 years writing about social justice issues for American newspapers. She's best known for Enrique's Journey. Her story about a Honduran boy's struggle to find his mother in the United States was published as a series in the L.A. Times. I'll never forget opening the paper every morning for a week and reading it. Won the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing. Then it was turned into a book that became a national bestseller. Now it's required reading at hundreds of high schools and colleges across the country. She's been writing recently for the New York Times op-ed page. Sonia Nazario, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Delighted to be here. Well, in order to write Enrique's journey, you spent five years hopping freight trains through Mexico, retracing the route from Honduras to the United States taken by this kid named Enrique. Thousands of parents and children make similar journeys every year, many more now than when you first wrote this story. Um, I was one of the many people who learned from your work that the most dangerous part of the trip from Central America to the United States is not crossing the border. It's the trip across Mexico. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what it's like for kids from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras to travel through Mexico uh, to the American border. Well, it's changed since I did the journey in 2000 and 2003. Um, I spent the first time three months off and on riding on top of seven freight trains. I was retracing the journey that uh, one Honduran boy, Enrique, had just made. And I can tell you it's been a long time, and I still have post-traumatic stress. I had a gangster try to rape me on top of the train. I had a branch almost swipe me off the top of the train. Um, The boy behind me was swiped off, and he likely died because, as you fall down, uh, there's a sucking wind that pulls you into the wheels. So still when I see a train, I start, uh, my heart starts racing, I start sweating profusely, and I went through 1% of what these children go through. Um, but back then, uh, children would, um, w- were largely following their, uh, their mothers. Their mothers had left them behind in Central America with the promise of coming back in one or two years. Uh, these separations stretched to 10 years, and these children set off on their own to come find their mothers. And it's a modern-day odyssey. They would spend months traveling through Mexico. They would face bandits alongside the rails. There were gangsters who controlled the train tops. I would see them roaming from car to car, surrounding migrants and saying, your money or your life, and throwing people down to those churning wheels below. I documented a dozen different types of corrupt cops in Mexico who would uh, line migrants, including these kids, up and rob them of their hats, belts, shoes, sometimes rape the girls, deport them across the southern border. President Trump says that Mexico is doing nothing, but they are actually deporting twice as many Central Americans as we are. Um, and they face the train, which they called La Bestia, the Beast. Uh, uh, it's very difficult. You have to get on and off these trains as they're moving because the Central Americans are traveling through Mexico illegally. And for a lot of the kids, the first rung of the ladder would come to their waist or even higher. Um, very difficult to do. And I saw dozens of people who had lost arms and legs and half Ugh. of their bodies to this freight train. So the question... Um, the journey the, has gotten more dangerous since then. So. And, and the question is, why would kids take such gigantic risks? Well, I think back then they were desperate to be with their mothers and, uh, you know, people that age think that they can get through anything and nothing bad will happen to them. Uh, But since then, there's been this huge growth in violence in Central America, which I've gone back to the New York Times to report on. Uh, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala 
are three of the top six most violent countries in the world. The only countries that are up there with them are Syria and Afghanistan. I went to a neighborhood that was the most dangerous in what for four years in a row was the murder capital of the world, San Pedro Sula, Honduras. And bodies littered the streets in the morning. The gangsters so brazenly controlled the neighborhood that one day they played soccer with the head of Ugh. someone they had just decapitated. Um, these kids are told, uh, at 9, 10, 11 years old, the boys, you're going to join the gang that controls this neighborhood. That is the government of that neighborhood. Or we will kill you. The girls are told you will be the girlfriend of the gang leader, or we will kill you. And many businesses in neighborhoods where I've spent time, half of the businesses have shut down because they're told by the gangs, you have to pay a war tax or we will kill your whole family. So these children are fleeing, as are their mothers now, uh, for their lives. And that's what's driving this migration. And until we deal with those push factors, they will keep coming. They don't think about what's happening on our border when they depart. They think about somebody who's made a threat and that they have to get out of the way of that threat right now. Well, I want to get back to those push factors, but first I want to talk about what happens to the to the families and to the, un, the we call them unaccompanied minors who make it to the, to the border. Um, Trump apparently wants to jail the the families together instead of at least that's the current the current position instead of separating from their parents that seems better how much better is it really it's not really better there have been countless studies uh, not to state the obvious here but being in prison is bad for a child um these studies and people i've talked to say that it triggers a stress hormone that wreaks havoc on the neural circuits in kids' brains. And people have interviewed these children uh, because they have been locked up with their parents in the past, and and this has been uh, not permitted uh, as part of the Flores uh, legal settlement. They can't hold kids for more than 20 days with even with their parents because of these issues. But kids regress to bedwetting, and uh, a nine-year-old girl wanted to go back to breastfeeding, Mm. and... They have night terrors, and there are also the restrictions on these kids in these places. In one place, toddlers were not allowed to crawl. They weren't allowed to have toys in their living spaces. These are prisons with locks and clanging doors and bars, and it's a place that a child simply should not be. These kids, And there is a humane, effective, cheap alternative. So tell um, us, tell we, us, what can we do to improve family detention where what's happening is the the mothers and the or the fathers are waiting for they've applied in most cases for asylum because they have a credible threat if they go back they will be killed it takes months and sometimes more than a year to build an asylum case and get an asylum hearing they are detained in the meantime how can we improve family detention well, first, let me say that, um, that, that what I'm hearing is that they're telling the parents, you will get your kid at the airport if you surrender your, your claim to asylum and sign to voluntarily deport yourself. You will see your child at the airport as we deport both of you. Yeah. We are gutting our asylum process, both because we're not letting people in at official ports of entry. I think it's very important for Americans to understand it is legal to present yourself at our border and ask for safety and asylum from the government. That is a legal process. And we are barring people uh, to, from, from doing that. And 
uh, Jeff Sessions, Attorney General, said we're no longer going to consider domestic violence or gang violence as one of the reasons for asylum. So uh, we're hearing about asylum officers doing these credible fear interviews, which is the first step to being admitted into the United States in the asylum process. Um, that the number who are accept who are approving those is going down because of Jeff Sessions' um, uh, uh, directives. So there's a wholesale assault on asylum in this country, which I find very troubling because. During World War II, we turned back that ship with 800 Jews aboard uh, the St. Louis ship. We didn't let them dock at our ports, and the, many of those Jews were killed in the Holocaust, and we didn't allow Anne Frank's family to come to this country. And we were the leaders after World War II in saying we would never do this again. There is a very effective way to do this where you release the family with their children. Um, in 2016, we started a case management program, so you assign the family a case manager, they teach them how to get legal services and how to get housing, but they also teach them the importance of showing up to your immigration hearings and what date it is, because it can be incredibly confusing, uh, and the, the importance of doing that. And with that program, 99% of the folks show up to those immigration court hearings, and that costs $36 a day for that case manager versus more than $900 a day to... Uh, to imprison a mother with two children. Um, if that family doesn't then qualify for asylum at the end of that process, and many liberals would disagree with me, I don't have a problem with um, telling that family you have to show up uh, at a designated date to be deported, um, or even sending ICE out to deport that family. I don't have a problem with that, but I think we can have a humane, effective, cheap system that complies with our sense of law and order in this country. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Sonia Nazario. She won the Pulitzer Prize for her book, Enrique's Journey, started as a series for the L.A. Times. Uh, Trump talks almost every day about MS-13, one of his favorite yes. topics of the <laughs> violent gang. It started here in L.A. It operates it in is. El Salvador. Is Trump right that MS-13 is sending murderers across the border, and that's why, so we need a wall to stop them? Um, th these are part of his alternative facts. I have no love for MS-13. Uh, they have tried to attack me personally. Um, however, um, when you look at the number of unaccompanied minors who have come here since 2011, even the head of the Border Patrol testified before Congress that only of, of 250,000 who have come since then, 56 were suspected or, or, or we confirmed MS-13 gangsters. 56 of 250,000. Mm. This is a tiny, tiny fraction. The number of MS-13 gangsters has not grown in recent years. It's 10,000 folks in the United States. It is not a major gang in the United States. I mean, if you live in Long Island, it's a problem. If you live in parts of Los Angeles, it's a problem. But he's trying to, I, I mean, the first thing in war is first you demonize, you dehumanize, and then you attack. And that's what he's doing, and it's simply a way of, uh, of attacking uh, children who are running from MS-13 in these countries. Those are the people who are threatening them, and they're trying to say, no, I will not join you. I do not want to join you, and I'm willing to give up everything I have in my country, everything I know and love, to fling myself out into the unknown in the United States uh, to, to flee that gang. So it's, it's quite despicable that he's you know, trying to paint with a broad brush all these kids in this way. You've spent a lot of time, you told us about 
the, your reporting from some of the most violent places in Central America. You said there are things the United States can do to make those places less violent so that young people from Honduras and El Salvador don't feel they have to travel across Mexico uh, to the United States in order to be safe. Yes. Uh, so two years ago, I went to this this place where people were beheaded and uh, where kids would be skinned alive and where there were bodies on the street. And what I saw was that the U.S. had implemented, and, and this was completely, uh, uh, you know, trying to benefit the United States in terms of slowing the flow of people. In 2014, we had this, this surge of unaccompanied minors, and U.S. Congress in 2015 more than doubled foreign aid to Central America. And we were spending about $100 million in Honduras on these pilot programs. We took what we have learned works in Los Angeles to reduce violence. We took what we learned works in Boston, and we applied those to, these, to, to the neighborhood I was in. And um, the, the issue is that in Honduras, 96% of all homicides get no conviction. You can murder someone in broad daylight, get away with it, because if you kill someone, if witnesses step forward uh, who saw the murder, um, tomorrow, if they speak, they're left dead in the middle of the street in this neighborhood with sapo, S-A-P-O, frog, etched on their uh, chest in ma magic marker, or a dead frog next to them, which means you talk too much, you're dead. Um, so no one steps forward to serve as witnesses. And what we did was we uh, funded outreach centers where kids can go after school, get off the streets, away from the gangs, get mentors, help getting jobs. Um, we went into the schools, like the GRID program here in Los Angeles, we went into schools and identified kids with the nine risk factors of going into gangs. And if you had five of those, we put you into a year of family counseling, which reduces 77% your odds of going into crime or abusing drugs or alcohol. And I think most importantly, we went after the bad guys. Um, we hired a nonprofit that goes in and investigates all homicides in that neighborhood. And um, they go to the morgue when the family picks up the body and says, we're a Christian group from the U.S. We have nothing to do with that corrupt Honduran government. Um, can we help you move the body? Can we help you with coffee for the wake? Three months into this, when they build trust, they say, can you help us solve, can you solve this murder? Can you testify? And I watched a woman testify with a black burka over her head, like they do in mafia trials in Italy. They, they covered her in a black burka, and as she arrived at the courthouse, they stuck her in this small closet, which had a one-way mirror and wheels on the bottom, and they wheeled her into the courtroom. And through a voice distorter, under the black burka, in the closet, she testified. Wow. And that meant that most of the homicides now are getting guilty verdicts. Wow. In two years, this worst neighborhood in the murder capital of the world for four years, 62% drop in homicides. Cut the number of kids, leaving by half. We can spend $100 million there, or we can spend billions of dollars once these kids arrive at our border. The reality is that most migrants prefer to live in their home countries sure. if they can. I know this as a child of immigrants. Um, and we should spend the money there to improve conditions. It's more humane and trying to work on programs that work. I have to tell you, I got a lot of grief from, uh, from some, uh, some on the left saying, how dare you say that the U.S. can do anything positive in Central America? And, you know, John, I covered the wars in Central America. I have a master's in Latin American studies. I know all the bad things that the U.S. has done in these countries. But when we're trying to do something that actually works, we should encourage that, I think. 
Sonia Nazario, you can see why she's a hero of ours. Sonia, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK. This is Trump Watch. Next up, it's been a really bad week at the Supreme Court. Harold Meyerson will comment. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening, Jerry, quickly. But first, it's been a big week for the Supremes. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page. We reached him today in our nation's capital, where his office is less than two miles from the Supreme Court building. Harold, welcome back. Uh, glad to be here, though I could uh, wish for a greater distance between <laughs> us and the Supreme Court. Yeah, I know what you mean. Well, where should we start? Janus versus AFSCME, undermining labor unions' political activities, the or the Texas Republican gerrymandering case. Both of those two help the courts helped Republicans win elections. We also have Justice Kennedy retiring at a time when Trump will pretty much be able to get a replacement through the Senate before the Democrats could take control of the Senate in January. Where would you like to start? Uh, brother. <laughs> well, um, uh, you know, let, let's start with, um, I, you know, I, wrote a, I wrote a column that's on the uh, Prospect website called Janus, Son of Bush v. Gore. Yeah. Uh, and it, it comes in two parts. Uh, it, it's the Son of Bush v. Gore because it's part of a whole series of rulings that the court has made in recent years and in, in recent weeks in which uh, clearly, uh, as they knew very well, it was they were uh, designed to help the Republicans electorally. Uh, the major public sector unions uh, who uh, were on the receiving end of Janus, which was a decision that made it impossible for the unions to collect uh, uh, what's called agency fees from those people who it represents in collective bargaining and uh, grievance procedures, but who aren't members. Previously, for 40 years, in fact, uh, there had been a court ruling that uh, those folks didn't have to pay uh, for the political activities of the unions, since they were not members, but they did have to pay for the work the unions were legally obligated to do to represent them in getting a contract and dealing with disputes uh, between them and management. Uh, now the court ruled, overturned that, uh, and ruled uh, that uh, uh, these folks don't have to pay the unions, which is a, uh, a severe blow uh, to... Uh, probably the most politically active unions in the country, uh, the two teachers' unions, the AFT and the NEA. And uh, AFSCME and SEIU, AFSCME is particularly well-known, not simply for getting its own members to the polls, but doing significant mobilization in, uh, among low-propensity voters who would vote Democratic in, uh, in the inner city, in African-American neighborhoods. SCIU the same, and it's taken a lead role in the fight for immigrant legalization and in Latino communities. So it, it's really a, a, a crippling blow, not crippling, but it, it, it's a serious blow 
Uh, and let, let me just insert here the vote. The yeah. vote on this five to four, five Republican right. appointees voted uh, to strip unions of the uh, funds they they have been collecting for representing um, employees of the uh, government in collective bargaining. Correct. And um, But this is of a piece with a number of rulings recently that have... Uh, benefited uh, Republicans. In particular, in recent weeks, the, by the same five to four majorities, uh, the, courts have, uh, the court has sent back uh, a number of uh, suits contesting the uh, partisan Republican gerrymandering of states, and most notably in a, in a case just last week uh, con- concerning uh, the redistricting, uh, the districting in Texas, uh, the court said, well, look, let's just trust the, uh, the uh, state legislature, that is the radical, Repu- radical right Republican state legislature, to do a fair job, um, which uh, I think doesn't meet uh, any, any test of plaus- minimal plausibility that I, uh, that I know of. The phrase, so, let know, me I, just inject here, yeah. the phrase in, in uh, Justice Alito's opinion was, we should presume that the state of Texas acted in good faith. And you are yeah. saying you, you don't think they did act in good faith. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, as a general rule, uh, you can't expect any legislature which is carving districts to protect its incumbents to have good faith at the top of its priority list. Uh, uh, but when a state is uh, as radical right as Texas and the rep- governing Republicans are scared that the growing uh, non-white majority in Texas, Latino, black, Asian, uh, is, is at some point going to uh, gain uh, control and is doing their damnedest to keep them from doing that by carving the lines the way they do, I think good faith is a bit of an overstatement. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and let know, me so just inject one other thing on the good faith uh, uh, point. Uh, two of the other um, justices uh, argued that uh, in their, in their uh, concurring opinions that uh, this was uh, Neil Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas that good faith doesn't really matter because the Voting Rights Act doesn't apply to redistricting at all. And there you have, uh, interestingly, this came down on the fifth anniversary of uh, the Shelby County ruling, where the five conservative justices on the court, and at that time it was Antonin Scalia instead of his replacement, Neil Gorsuch, uh, essentially uh, ruled that the Voting Rights Act was no longer enforceable, uh, chiefly in states where the institutional and political and social legacies of white racism are plain for all to see. So, uh, you know, this, this uh, again, uh, you know, suggests uh, not only a particular racial bias, but a very strong partisan bias. And we, and we should remember that the whole uh, issue of there being a fifth Republican justice, Neil Gorsuch, was created by uh, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, uh, uh, who uh, in 2016 refused to consider uh, uh, President Obama's nomination of Merrill Garland for the court uh, uh, just refused even to hold hearings or bring it to a vote. Um, uh, otherwise, uh, this would not be Neil Gorsuch on the court. So um, this is political from the, from the get-go. And in a sense, Mitch McConnell had a great day yesterday because uh, by ensuring uh, a Republican and even a Trump appointee on the court, uh, he got paid back 
by having that court do what I called son of Bush v. Gore, that doing its damnedest to strengthen Republican electoral process, uh, prospects, which is what Mitch McConnell is really, really possibly the only thing he's, uh, he's concerned about. So the Janus decision uh, undermining labor unions uh, funding, uh, which includes their political um, activities, even though <laughs> we should emphasize here uh, state employees who don't agree with unions' politics never had to pay for political right. activities. That's uh, right. And, so, and, and they, you know, as, as Justice Kagan pointed out in her dissenting opinion, uh, this overturns uh, what was settled law. The court ruled uh, 41 years ago in a case called Abood versus Detroit that uh, public employees did have that right not to pay for that, but they had to pay to cover the activities that the unions are obliged to perform for them. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, uh, she, she, she then cited, you know, there are hundreds of court cases based on that Abood case. There are 22 states where uh, public employees have collective bargaining rights that, that are uh, carried out under this Abu decision. It's really quite destabilizing. Now, for his part, Alito, uh, who wrote the opinion uh, not only on the Texas case, but uh, on, uh, on Janus. In fact, he had invited it as long as six years ago. He said, why doesn't someone challenge Abu? He wrote in, which, which wasn't before the court, he wrote an opinion on another case, the Knox case back in, in 2012. What what struck me in reading Alito's opinion was that the two cases he cited most often were precisely that Knox case, where he wrote a decision saying, why doesn't someone challenge Abood? And uh, a second case, which said uh, that uh, specifically home care workers paid by the state don't have to pay agency fees, which he wrote as well. So the two precedents that Alito cited in writing Janus were the two cases in which the precedents were in opinions written by himself, uh, you know, which, which, which uh, could be viewed as narcissism, or it could be viewed as there is no body of law except that which he himself created that justifies this nonsense. Excellent so. point. So in the immediate effect of Janus, will this Janus decision uh, hurt, or how much will it hurt union get out the votes in elections this coming November? Well, one thing we know, and uh, uh, Josh Idelson has a piece, had a piece up this uh, up about this on on Bloomberg uh, uh, late yesterday, is that the Koch brothers and others have funded uh, these canvassers who have been primed uh, to start knocking on uh, uh, people who uh, have been agency fee payers, knocking on their doors, saying, "Okay, you no longer have to pay. Uh, don't get any more union publications. Yada yada." These people are already lined up to uh, to do that. <coughs> I suspect, from what I understand, at least in Oregon and Washington, and maybe California too, they've already begun to do that um, in the last 24 hours. Now, the unions, the major unions that are public sector unions, have known for some time that this is coming. Yes. you. In so, fact, you uh, and I have talked about this more than once on this very program. Yeah. Well, I mean, a, a similar case actually came before the court two years ago, and the only reason this kind of ruling didn't come down then was that Antonin Scalia died before he could weigh in on the case, and they had a four-to-four -four tie as a result. Um, but the unions have known this is coming, and they've been assiduously working to sign up members, I know, you know uh, yet again, to get their members to reaffirm and to try to get some of the agency fee uh, folks to join. I know the uh, American Federation of Teachers has successfully done that with more than 800,000 
of, uh, of the people it represents. Uh, AFSCME has done uh, tremendously extensive work, uh, having 25,000 of their core members talk to their fellow workers where they work and uh, uh, get them to sign up again. So the unions are ready for this, but there's no question, you know, they're going to take, uh, they're going to take something of a loss. Uh, and just administratively, uh, for the states where there are uh, where public uh, sector unions have collective bargaining rights, of which California is one, uh, and administratively for the unions themselves, this creates a ton of, you know, paperwork that itself will take significant resources, and uh, you know that, that too is an impediment to what the unions can do. But 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 I want to add, the Republican justices on the court didn't just do this because they want to help Republicans in elections. They genuinely hate unions, and that's. That's why I called the ca- case, in addition to the son of Bush v. Gore, the grandson of Lochner. Which, <laughs> Lochner, not as well known to many of no, our listeners. Lochner was a 1905 decision in the days when the courts hated unions just as much as these five guys do now, um, that struck down a New York state law that said bakers cannot be compelled to work more than 10 hours a day or 60 hours a week. And the courts st- then struck this down in Lochner versus New York, struck that law down, saying it impinged on the uh, free contract rights of of employers. Ah, uh, and uh, I think we're uh, we're going back to that. And I would cite two cases recently, not only the Janus case, but a case uh, last week or two weeks ago, actually, that uh, uh, said that uh, corporations have every right to demand uh, that employees, as a condition of employment, sign a statement that if they have any grievance against uh, their employer, uh, they have to have it resolved in an arbitration process. And everyone knows, or everyone who's around this particular world knows, that the employers and corporations completely dominate uh, 99% of these arbitration processes, and that these people can no longer go to court, even though that's a guarantee uh, afforded them by the National Labor Relations Act, which the Gang of Five on the court studiously ignored. Uh, so, I mean, really, it's a war on workers. And I might add the other way to look at all of this. The other way to look at all of this is that um, this is the same court that in uh, well, actually, again, it was uh, uh, this. This was Antonin Scalia before Neil, Gorsor- Neil Gorsuch. But with that caveat, this is the same court that uh, passed. Uh, the Citizens United decision, the same majority of five, that said corporations, for the first time since uh, the 19 aughts, can now legally make contributions to campaigns, and now they have ruled that labor unions will have less to contribute uh, and invest in political campaigns. So if you detect a small class bias, do. and when you put I those do. two decisions together, you're, you, then you kind of get where I'm headed. Yes, I, I see where you're headed for that. Now, we need to move on to the to this Kennedy Justice Kennedy succession question. The only good result that I can see of all the terrible Supreme Court news of the last few days is that it will motivate liberal and progressive voters to go to the polls in November. So we're more likely, or at least a little more likely, to get a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. Uh, of course, the whole point of Kennedy stepping down now is to try to get a Trump nominee through the Senate confirmation process before a Democratic majority arrives in the Senate. What should Democrats do now and in the coming year? Well, for now, if all the Democrats vote against that 
Trump appointee, they'll still be one vote short. That's 49 Democrats. Let's assume John McCain is still in no shape to travel. Uh, and so the vote would be, if the Republicans are unified, it would be 50 to 49 for confirmation, which is enough to put, you know, under the new rules, to put the, that justice, put that appointee onto the court. However, uh, but since most of the coverage right now is on the fact that this could very well endanger Roe v. Wade and could very well endanger the Obergfell uh, decision, which legalized <coughs> same-sex marriage, the remaining four conservatives on the court all voted no on on, on same-sex marriage and are uh, stated opponents of Roe. Uh, this creates a bit of an opening for the uh, for the pro-choice uh, community and their allies to try to furiously lobby some Republican senators who might be swing votes on this. There are two in particular: Susan Collins in Maine and Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, and I suspect. They are going to be hearing a ton from their constituents. I also think, by the way, that uh, the, uh, the uh, publicity that this particular issue is being given probably is good for the Democrats in all those suburban upper-middle-class districts, like those in Orange County, uh, where uh, uh, Republican incumbents uh, are uh, running somewhat scared, and where uh, there are a lot of upper-middle-class Republican women who would be appalled at the notion of the court repealing Roe v. Wade. Uh, so we have, I think... yes, yes, Go ahead. we have three minutes left, and I want to talk about what happens when a new Congress is seated in January. If the Democrats have a majority in the Senate, what should they do with it? They should do t one of two things. Uh, either they should unify with their 51 or 52 or 53 votes <clears throat> and refuse to confirm any of Trump's judicial nominations, just as Mitch McConnell uh, refused on, uh, on uh, Mer Merrick Garland. But <clears throat> if the Democrats don't have that, uh, Chuck Schumer can still do what, uh, uh, what Mitch McConnell did on, on the Garland incident, which is, uh, simply refused to bring it to uh, the floor of the Senate. Uh, and Dianne Feinstein, uh, who would be the chair of the Judiciary Committee, can refuse to hold hearings. That is exactly what uh, McConnell did. They can call it, we're just following the McConnell precedent. Ah, but there is one more thing. If, if the Democrats are stuck with five troglodytes on the court and there's a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president in 2021, I would suggest that that president uh, resurrect uh, uh, something out of the FDR playbook and uh, what, uh, pack the court, uh, say that I'm adding uh, the Congress should add two more justices to the Supreme Court so we do not have decades of Neanderthal uh, legal decisions ruining tens of millions of Americans' lives. Well, and I would also say the, the nine justices, there's nothing in the Constitution that nine justices are required and the workload has gotten so much greater that those nine need a little more help, don't you think? Uh, absolutely, and I think the court was originally seven and Congress expanded it to nine. Uh, there's no reason why they have, since they're obviously competent in a at adding the number two, there's no reason <laughs> they couldn't take that to 11. I would cast only one shadow over all this, and that is that when it came to voting for Neil Gorsuch, three Democrats voted in favor of Gorsuch, Heidi Heitkamp, 
Joe Manchin and Joe Donnelly. So we that can't. That is why. That is why uh, Schumer can just uh, avoid that happening by refusing to let the vote even be held if he's a majority leader. He doesn't need their support. And, uh, you know, those of us old enough to have grown up in the era of the Warren Court have, you know, learned at a young age that the Supreme Court was an ally and defender of, of liberty, especially around civil rights. But for almost all of its history, the court was a supporter of the powerful and wealthy, and it, it seems like now those, those days are likely to return and we're going to need to turn elsewhere uh, to defend uh, liberty and freedom in America. Harold Meyer. Get more le- lefty justices on the court through packing it by adding the number two. <laughs> adding the number two. Harold Meyerson, read all about it at prospect.org. Harold, thank you for telling us what is to be done. <laughs> thank you, John. <laughs> Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Dana Goodyear of The New Yorker, reported on the Democrats' campaign to flip the only Republican House seat in L.A. County. Uh, Sonia Nazario talked about migrant children, the Border Patrol, and life in Latin in Central America. Uh, thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight, this is happening very quickly. And just a quick note, this Saturday, families belong together. Demonstrations across uh, the United States, including across uh, Southern California, demanding that we reunite migrant families immediately and family separation for good. You can find out where your nearest demonstration is at familiesbelongtogether.org. This is downtown Pasadena, West Hollywood, and other places. I'm John Wiener. I'll be back next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Thanks for listening. Yeah.